to this week's Checkbook Journalism edition of <laughs> uh, Spin Cycle, the show that uh, aims to unweave the great knot that is our 24-hour news cycle. Um, we are broadcasting as ever from the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Um, I'm Charlie Reporter... Uh, I'm trying to report to Greg Lewis. This is, this is uh, the kind of week we're going to have, yeah. guys. It's been a bit of a time for, for everyone in the studio. So please. Everyone do... being two of us. Yes. <laughs> I am Crikey reporter Charlie Lewis, and I am joined by Rachel Withers of The Monthly. Good evening, Rachel. Good evening, Charlie. We are missing our, um, our technical expert and adult in the room, Jess <laughs> Lilly. So there's going to be a bit of chaos in this evening. Yeah, I mean, we're missing her, her technical excellence, but I would say that she's here with us in spirit, uh, having spent the week ranting about uh, various things in the media in our group chat. <laughs> yes. yes, if she's not um, doing it with, um, if she's not doing it on the show, she's doing it in, with us in a group chat, if our, our listeners should know. <laughs> she's, she's very, very committed. Um, we're going to have um, Michael Bradley of Mark Lawyers, um, a, a media law expert, uh, contributor to Crikey, uh, just an all-round friend of the show, I think, to talk about the current state of defamation law in the country. Um, but until then, we've got a few things we need to kind of get through. We have through. many things to yeah. get through, but I think there's a particular uh, story from today's news that you wanted to talk about first. Yeah, yeah. I, look, I think so this uh, – today, I mean, anyone who uh, – I think anyone who tunes into this show would probably be the kind of person who already knows this news. But for those of you who have not been failed, please do sit down. Um, <laughs> former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger passed away today. <gasps> <laughs> I'm breaking, if I'm breaking that news to you, just seriously, get the internet. But um, uh, at the age of 100. Um, and I think – so this – our listeners Where did main... you first hear the news, out of interest? I, I first saw it uh, on Twitter. Yeah, um, same. Yeah, and, <laughs> and then kind of like, it's one of those great things where like you see something on Twitter and then 20 minutes later someone you know messages you go, did you hear this? <laughs> the and you're like, oh, go off. Yeah. oh, bless you. Um, and I think like, well, I mean, there's, there's a lot of thoughts I had about the whole thing. Um, and I try, and this may sort of like shock listeners to hear that I think this about my own performance <laughs> on this show, but I do genuinely try and keep my political views out of the show unless they actually, except insofar as they affect journalism mm -hmm. and the, the, the craft of journalism. I don't actually like talking about politics on the show unless I'm talking about like how journalism mm -hmm. is doing a good job or a bad job of holding power to account. And I think Henry Kissinger is a really good example of that. Um, because he is, he is the ultimate uh, kind of example of a certain kind of figure, a figure who, by any stretch of the imagination... It, the, the, all right, the uncharitable um, take on his legacy is that he is a mass murderer and a war criminal. Maybe you don't think that. Maybe you think he was a pragmatist and he, and he did what he had to do in that sort of geopolitical situation that he dealt with. You know, you and I would disagree on that, but maybe that's your take. <laughs> but I think... Really, by any stretch of the imagination, he bungled every single job he ever took on. Um, no, no, situ no geopolitical uh, situation that he ever got himself involved in was ever better off because mm -hmm. of his involvement. Mm -hmm. And I'm, and anyone who wants to kind of check on that, I'm happy to talk about any examples, whether it's in Chile, <laughs> whether it's in Bangladesh, whether it's in um, Vietnam, whether it's in Cambodia, uh, whether it's in East Timor. Like like the the the, the unbelievable mm. calamity that that man left in his wake. And it didn't stop him being thought of in, in a lot of mainstream circles as, as a kind of bipartisan master of statecraft, someone, mm. who the, someone who you would get on the news show to talk 
you know, dispassionately about foreign policy. Someone who, I mean, he had... He was a columnist for the Washington Post. He was a columnist yeah. for the LA Times. He was, I think, the go-to thing for ABC and America. ABC America, uh, their show Nightline. He was someone that was on all the time to mm. talk about what was going on in the world. Um, and it, 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 it sort of, I think, you know, in in a time when we're always talking about the idea of, uh, and I'm sure we're going to get into this a bit more in a second, but the idea of objectivity and neutrality and never letting your kind of moral ideas impinge on your idea of reporting that's kind of where it gets you mm-hmm. is a figure like that with possibly one one um one one of his biographers puts the death toll that is could be attributed to decisions he made avoidable death toll at three to four million people mm-hmm. that, that that you know you could say that even if that's overstating it it's still a horribly destructive legacy and yet he never i mean so i mean we talked about this before we came on i don't know how much we want to get into this but like when everyone was kind of like all the left twitter media figures were going insane with joy at his passing i couldn't i couldn't join them i couldn't i couldn't get into it because i thought no this is terrible he will he died rich and peacefully surrounded by his loved ones fated by his peers he he got off he cheated he, che- he cheated justice by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, and I think that is in part um, what leads to that um, level of, of uh, joy perhaps or, or simply... Catharsis, I suppose, yeah. is, the, is, the, is the way to I mean, think for, of it. For yeah. most people in the world, they do not have the power to hold the powerful to account mm-hmm. individually. Um, and when someone like Harry, Henry Kissinger dies, um, the... That is kind of the only thing they'll ever get yeah. over him, even if you know. Which, by by, by the way, he died happy and rich. Yeah, like, yeah. it's like it really. I mean, we don't know if he was happy. No, no. But, I mean, do figures like that are they ever happy? I mean, that, that, that that's probably not, <laughs> the philosophy. Of yeah, the yeah, show. yeah. That, that's, that's a different probably enough, episode yeah. to, to get into into that. Um, but yeah, no, and, and that's part of what maybe makes me sad about the whole thing is like this is all we got on as 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 people who believe in a more progressive idea of the world is is just howling with joy at someone who basically achieved everything they ever set out to achieve like i don't know if we won that one (laughs) no but i guess uh one thing to end on here is is uh a tweet that jess shared with us today just had a lot of time for the kissinger tweets (laughs) and um somebody tweeted terrible people dying is where twitter really thrives no other social media app could create this much community. And look, I think that's beautiful. I do <laughs> love the moments where Twitter uh, feels like a real um, a, a, a strange, chaotic conversation. Uh, it, yeah. oh, you know, X as we call it now, um, is still there uh, for the moments when people who uh, maybe committed big war crimes die. Um, <laughs> Allegedly, actually, no, you, you can't, you can't, you can't defame the dead. Um, it's oh, fine. Oh, great! Yeah, so say, say whatever you need to say. Great. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, along um, along similar lines, we obviously had uh, one one thing that we have been doing um, ever since October seven is uh, kind of keeping our listeners up to date with the. The another death toll, which is uh, the death toll in um, the conflict between Israel and Hamas, or uh, the the conflict that's going on in the Gaza Strip at the moment. We now have uh, via the Committee to Protect Journalists, um, as of the, November 29th, we have no reason to assume that this would have changed since, because obviously there's currently a, a pause in the conflict. Uh, we now have lost 57 journalists yes. to that conflict, which um. is. Um, 
above average. Oh yeah, it's it's the deadliest month for um, well, it's more than a month now, but it, it has we have recorded the deadliest month for journalists since the committee to protect journalists started uh, keeping keeping figures. Um, and yeah, amongst those fifty seven journalists and media workers uh, who have died, uh, fifty Palestinians, four Israelis, and three Lebanese journalists. Uh, as well as 11 journalists who've been reported injured, three who have been reported missing, and 19 who uh, have been reported arrested. Um, so, yeah, it's something I think it's always important to to remind ourselves of. Um, mm. And as the CPJ emphasised, journalists are civilians doing work during times of crisis and must not be targeted by warring parties. Mm-hmm. Um I think that's also when we might segue uh, or, you know, uh, mention the uh, public letter that came out at the end of last week on Friday, so it didn't make it into our last show, um, from journalists to Australian media outlets. So if you haven't seen this letter or heard about this letter, um, I'm not sure what you're doing listening to a media spin show. <laughs> yeah. um, but it was a letter expressing support for ethical reporting on Israel and Palestine and calling for the events to be covered with integrity, transparency and rigour. It called on Australian newsrooms to undertake steps to improve coverage, um, including adhering to truth over both sidesism, both sidesism um, to apply as much professional scepticism to Israeli government and military sources as is applied to Hamas, provide historical context when referencing uh, mm. the October 7 Hamas attacks on Israel and maybe most relevant here for journalists to be transparent if they have been on an all-expenses paid trip to Israel organised by pro-Israeli government groups. Um, and over the past few weeks of um, journalists, Australian journalists covering this conflict, um, more and more names have been added to a, a list that's being kept by your co- your colleague at Crikey, uh, Danny Danielle Syed, mm-hmm. um, and that list. I mean, it was an article at first, um, and then <laughs> yeah. it turned into it had to just be a, a, a dot point list because it got so long. Um, yeah. But to stick to the the letter for a minute, um, this letter was signed by over a hundred journalists when it dropped. It's now up to about three hundred because journalists can keep adding their names to the dot form. Um, and we can also sort of near the end of this conversation mention where you can find that. Um, but yeah, that, the letter, uh, has, has been... It's, an, it's sparked debate, shall we say. It sparked a little bit of debate. <laughs> yeah. Um, firstly, I'd say because, um, even before the letter came out on Friday afternoon, <laughs> I walked out of therapy and, um, <laughs> it, this it all happened. Um, but, um, I... I think we might also acknowledge that we are both signatories yes, to correct. the letter, yes. um, along with Many a couple of hundred yeah, journalists yeah. now. Um, but before it was even out, um, before the media union had even circulated it, mm. um, there was a leak from inside the City Morning Herald and The Age to another one of your colleagues. <laughs> it's all about cranky tonight. Uh, I, I love it. Any, any, any of you just spruik the great work of yeah. my colleagues do. Uh, Cam Wilson yeah. had a had a note from the four editors at the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age mm. um, banning staff who signed the letter from contributing to their outlet's coverage mm-hmm. of the conflict. And uh, this, this hasn't gone down very well. No, no. And, and I think probably the one thing to mention is that all, all I think we have now established that all four signatories of that particular note to their staff 
have all it does it has been revealed by my colleague Dani uh been to Israel on, on trips that were paid for by um yes uh, yeah I, I would actually I think I think at that point maybe only two or three of them yeah had, we, had we been... confirmed a couple since and yeah yeah somebody yeah <laughs> sent me a, a picture of the age editor on one and and um I put it up on Twitter yes um <laughs> Hi. <laughs> I mean, I think you know. I think you know. For for, for all, it's an interesting one because there are there are debate. There, there have been debates in the cracky office about mm. that particular letter, and and I think the concept of journalists putting their names to certain ideas and certain causes, whether you can call it that, um, there has been division. In, I'm sure every single newsroom in Australia about what the appropriate thing for a journalist is to do, and I think that in some ways that's a healthy debate to have. Um, well, I mean, we've seen um, a friend of the show, uh, guest, oh, Professor, yes, Dennis yes, Muller, Professor Dennis Muller, yeah, yeah. Uh, wrote a piece in the Conversation, basically saying um, uh, the headline was at a time when journalism needs to be at its strongest, an open letter on the Israel-Hamas war has left the profession diminished. So his take was journalists shouldn't sign letters. Um, I um, I mean, I'm very pro this letter. Um, I think what frustrated um, signatories to the letter most, and I can't speak for the people at the Sydney Mon Herald and The Age, although, uh, again, we're seeing a lot of leaks, um, is that the people saying you can no longer contribute because of impressions, perceptions of, of bias that signing yeah, the letter yeah, creates, yeah, yeah. have um, themselves been on on um, trips to Israel funded by pro-Israeli government uh, groups. And so what is a more of a mark against, um, I suppose, a journalist's impartiality on this issue? Signing a letter that... Um, look, I mean... It, I, I think it's fair to say it, it calls for integrity, transparency and rigour. It calls mm-hmm. for journalistic standards to be upheld. Um, it has been reported as a pro-Palestine letter across a lot of the media. I mean, I, I'm Saturday morning because I don't have a life apparently. <laughs> I, I woke up and, and read the coverage of the letter and, of course, m- most of the mainstream media was very critical of the letter. Um, I don't believe the letter is a, a pro-Palestine letter. I, I, I think it's a pro balance and um, accuracy letter, but mm. because of, um, you know, this this whole, this letter, that letter, who's signed what statement, I think it, there's a perception that this is a quote-unquote pro-Palestine letter and therefore mm-hmm. people's um, impartiality has been compromised. Yeah, and is, I, mean, I mean, I'm going to do uh, an annoyingly fence city kind of take <laughs> on this, but I mean, I suppose, I mean, in, when I was listening to my colleagues debate about this, and I think there's there's a few different takes. One is that you can't actually, but this would be my take is that you can't help but be a human being in the world and have your um, idea of right and wrong kind of inform what you wanted to be a journalist for in the first place, and your idea mm. of. Of, of systems of power and interrogating those in a way that um, will lead you to some kind of conclusion. You can't really avoid that. Um, colleagues of mine We're not have, robots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and colleagues of mine have also kind of, without saying that, that that might be the case, but the idea of publicly aligning yourself with one view or another is something that can possibly colour your view and you should try and avoid that. I think in some ways those those aren't... There's actually aren't as um, incompatible as maybe it might seem on the surface. But I also do think that both, but that honourable journalism can be done 
adhering to both of those points of view in the world. I, I, I genuinely do think that you can... Um, that, that in some ways, I think they are in some ways striving for the same thing via different routes. They're trying to... They, they're trying to... Um, adhere to the truth, essentially. Yeah, and I mean, I think that's all we all can do and all we should try to do. Um, I think what what uh, drove me a little crazy on Saturday, um, and I think this speaks to the entire conflict, is, is that um, we all seem to be retreating into our own versions of reality yes. here. Yeah. Um, it is quite clear that the editors of the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age have a entirely different um, view of what is taking place, what the letter means, uh, what what the conflict means, and, and, and so do all of us. So, yeah. do, so does, you know, not just journalists but lay people on the street. It's very hard for um, I think we all need to be able to be ready to question our own version of absolutely, reality. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, that that is something that, yeah, a different idea of what it is that colours your view of your reporting. Yeah. Uh, some I, people, it, it, I, I think there is a defensible point of view. I'll, it's not one that I agree with, but it's a defensible point of view to say no journalist should ever put their name to anything like that. They should never, ever publicly put that on the record. But I think you can't argue that and then also argue that a, a study trip paid for by a foreign government is... Shouldn't shouldn't at least be declared at the Absolutely very least. Absolutely not. I mean, that's the thing. Is is to me, you know, we all have to to try to see each other's point of views, um, but I just can't shake the the objective journalistic standard of report of of, of declaring and disclosing um, that you've been on on paid trips, even if you mm. don't believe that you were influenced. Um, even if it was a long time ago, which is sort of the defences we're seeing, yeah. um, you know, basic standards. Yeah. If we can, if we can agree to minimum standards, is to declare these things. And therefore, I'm, I am, you know, uh, proud to have signed the letter, and, and and I stand by it because, you know, there appears to be something wrong with the coverage in this country if it cannot even be disclosed that people have been on trips and, and, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of prominent Australians are offered these trips. Um, lots of people are also declaring that they were offered trips and actually turned them down. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Sally Rugg was one on, on Twitter <laughs> saying, you know, um, received this offer in 2018 or 2019, looked at it and went, yeah, like, I, it, look like it looks like it has noble aims, but that is compromising. And I think, I think we all need to agree to some basic minimum journalistic standards. Um, mm-hmm. And I just can't see any world in which accepting a trip from a foreign government isn't compromising to your impartiality as a journalist. If you don't declare it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> declare it. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app. Uh, we are now joined by Michael Bradley. Michael is a writer and a lawyer. He's the managing partner of Sydney law firm Mark Lawyers, where he specialises in media and human rights law. Most famously, he has recently taken on both Christian Porter and Lachlan Murdoch in the federal court. And as an author, he has three books published and is a regular contributor to Crikey, writing about law and social justice, mostly expressing despair at the banal stupidity that passes for legislative policy debate in this country. We are delighted (laughs) to have him with us. Uh, Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we 
Hi, Rachel. <laughs> so we've seen uh, in the in the last year or so a, a real flurry of high-profile defamation cases between uh, high-profile complainants and media companies, um, and I'm sure we'll have time to get into all of them at some point or another. But we currently have um, former Liberal staffer uh, Bruce Lerman in court suing Network 10 and their former presenter Lisa Wilkinson. Um, the initial report uh, for which he's suing did not name him. And I suppose just to kind of like really kind of bring our listeners up to date, what are the, what are the issues of law at stake here? What, what, what's being argued? Yeah, so... Um I mean, at the at the root of this is is you know, the, the rape allegation um, that uh, that Brittany Higgins made, um, and which she um, uh, talked about on on the project and Channel Ten broadcast. And uh, but yes, at that time didn't didn't identify Bruce Lerman as the alleged rapist. Um, but uh, so he's suing for defamation over that um, an allegation. Of rape is, by definition, defamatory. It's one of the most defamatory things you can say about a person. So it's not. So that's not an issue. And in fact, Ten has admitted that um, that that's a that's an imputation that was conveyed. So we're not arguing a toss about that. There is there's a sort of cascading series of issues. Though the first one is they say he wasn't identified, um, and it's he has to prove that. So, so he has to prove that the ordinary audience member of average intelligence um, watching that program would have gone, oh, yeah, OK, I know who they're talking about. It's Bruce Lerman. If he gets over that hurdle, then, um, then yeah, the defamation is made out. And then it's a question of does Ken have a good defence and does Lisa Wilkinson have a good defence because he's suing her personally as well. Um, and really, the defence that's going to this case is going to turn on is the defence of truth. And truth is a complete defence um, to defamation, and the onus of proving that is on ten. So they have to satisfy the judge on the balance of probabilities that the allegation, the, the defamatory imputation, is true, meaning that the rape um, happened, um, that, that he did what he was accused of. Um, and um, that's why we're in the middle of seeing Brittany Higgins being cross-examined um, extremely aggressively by Lerman's barrister because for him to win the case, the judge has to not believe her. Mm. And, I mean, obviously this is a case that Australia has been following for a long time, Um in this case, uh, when it comes to defamation, it's a it's a lower standard of proof than in the criminal trial, which was aborted. Is that correct? Yeah, um, criminal in a criminal case, the prosecution has to prove the crime um, was committed and every element of the crime beyond reasonable doubt, which mm. is an extremely high threshold. Whereas in yeah, in a civil case, it's on the balance of probabilities, um, which is yeah, vastly lower, um, and. There's a lot of criticism around, which is completely legitimate, that um, to the effect that a defamation civil case in front of a federal court judge is really not the place to be conducting a rape trial, mm. and that is, mm-hmm. that is absolutely true. Yeah, I mean, like I think one thing that as as those watching it 
online um, and, you know, it, it's been a big topic of conversation on Twitter this week, obviously, um, over the past few weeks um, with Bruce on the stand for the first time and, and now Brittany. Um, I wanted to ask sort of um, <laughs> why, why, I don't, I'm being so careful here, but uh, <laughs> why would any lawyer advise Bruce Lerman to do this when he has been found not guilty? Oh, sorry, he hasn't, there's been no ruling, sorry, in a criminal trial. Um, why would he prompt this again? Why would he bring it back? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know what any lawyer has advised him. I know what I would have advised him, um, which would have been to leave the country um, and get on with his life under a new name. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, you know, it's, it's not just um, an incredibly risky thing to do in terms of the, the defamation case itself because um, it... Uh, it forces him into the witness box, which in the criminal trial he didn't have to do. And in criminal defendants have the right to silence and mm. that can't be held against them. Whereas in a civil case, he had to get in the box mm. because because if he didn't, then the, then the court would have to um, draw an inference that, mm. that there was a good reason for that and, and he would he would lose. So, so that's a kind of, you know, a massive downside in itself. Then there's the cost risk of the litigation, I mean, it's an incredibly expensive case to run, and if he loses, he'll be up for the other side's costs mm -hmm. as well. Um, and then on top of all that, he could still be retried for the rape in a criminal case. Yeah, I mean, is do you think that um, that becomes more likely as a result of this defamation proceeding? I mean, the reason that the DPP in the ACT decided not to retry, not to go for a retrial um, after the first trial was aborted was um, because Brittany Higgins' mental mm. um, state, you know, wasn't up to it. You know, he, he felt that was a risk to her, to her life. It was a fair, fair call. Um, I imagine... Um, you know, if she subsequently feels like, well, you know, she she could put herself through that again, which would be that would be the third time um, she yeah. she had to go through that that ordeal. Um, then that might that might change the DPP's mind. That that'll be a matter for the DPP, not it's not a decision mm -hmm. for her. Um, but it's you know, yeah, it's conceivable. Um, look, Michael, as you said at at the start, you know. It, it doesn't feel like a defamation trial is the best uh, mechanism to litigate a, a, a rape allegation, but uh, that's, um, I suppose, what we've um, what we've come to now. Um, one thing I was wondering. I mean, I know um, Brittany Higgins made it quite clear um, in public statements um, when there were reports that Lerman was considering suing for defamation, that she was very happy to um, appear as a witness in any trial, you know, to, as a witness for the, for the, for the media organisations who were being sued um, for defamation. Um, um, you know, I, I think it's interesting 
the huge amount of public interest um, that people have taken in this case. I mean, I know a lot of people wanted to see a defamation um, trial go ahead if only to hear these um, these issues litigated again or, or properly this time because, as we're learning, a lot of, a lot of details didn't come out before. Um, I suppose, like... Have things started to shift in the defamation space, um, which has traditionally in in Australia been like a, a place where media organisations just get absolutely destroyed and often settle because um, conditions are so unfavourable to re- to to reporting in this country. Has something changed in the last couple of years? Yeah, a couple of things have changed. Uh, yeah, look, we went through a period where um, a perception developed quite fairly that. Um, you know, all you had to do was file a defamation claim and, and you mm. could pretty much write your own cheque because plaintiffs kept winning. Um, and there were some, you know, some really high-profile cases that, that um, went went that way. Um, two things changed. One is that um, I think some plaintiffs jumped the shark and um, brought mm. cases that probably they would have been wiser not to. Certainly, you know, Ben Robert Smith is currently holding the trophy <laughs> for that. Um, uh, but, you know, there's been a few others like Craig McLaughlin, mm. you know, who had to drop his case partway through. Um, it, was, it was going so badly. Um, and, and that's because... Christian Porter? We've had this... <laughs> yeah, well, well yeah, that, exactly. Like, so we've had this spate of defamation claims where the subject matter is things like sexual assault, um, uh, which is a binary proposition. Mm-hmm. It happened or it didn't. Mm-hmm. And so these are like, these are, these are all or nothing cases. Um, and you'd have to be crazy to, um, to go that way. Like, it's, it's just not a good bet. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing that's changed is that we now have this public interest defence that didn't exist previously, um, and uh, and that's in, it is emboldening the media slowly to be more brave about their investigative reporting and what they're prepared to publish, and starting to have an impact on plaintiffs um, to sort of think a little more carefully about whether they want to have a crack so some plaintiffs um, <laughs> plaintiff. yeah if if the Lachlan Murdoch case had gone ahead if he hadn't dropped it um the, the public interest question would have been the central you know element of that um and would have really really tested the ground on that front um uh, I mean uh, Sorry, Michael. And along, along similar lines, obviously, we've recently had the case brought by uh, former commando Heston Russell against the ABC, mm. which the yep. ABC actually lost uh, when yep. their public interest defence failed. What, what was your kind of take of that? Was that the, the first major test this had had? Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it's the first precedent for that defence. Uh, it'll be interesting to... I mean, we need a few more cases, I think, and we, and we ultimately we need a high court case on the public interest defence to see where that really lands. It, it um, what we all hope is that it doesn't follow the trajectory of the, the old qualified privilege defence, which got 
interpreted out of existence for the media. Um, although that's not interestingly that tens running qualified privilege in in Lerman's case. Um, I'm not sure why, but um, but yeah, it's a question of sort of how how many hurdles to to the courts make media organisations jump over before they can access the public interest defence. The problem in uh, the Russell case was there were holes in the ABC's reporting. Like, they they were relying on a source um, that just didn't seem that solid. Um, and then, so they really they ended up having to sort of fall back on identification as their their main line, and, and that failed. So it wasn't the best best test case for the media, frankly. I, I, I think they should have settled that one. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to bring us back to to the current uh, the the Bruce Lemon versus Network Ten um, case, and sort of less on a legal note, but more on a, a, a media uh, analysis note. Um, I think we've seen a lot of, of um, interesting details uh, coming from Bruce Lerman's uh, cross-examination. And one of them was that um, Channel 7 has been paying Bruce Lerman's rent. Um, and that's as a result of the spotlight interview he gave with Channel 7, which they claimed not to have paid a, a fee for, that the understanding was that uh, they had covered his accommodation. accommodation. Uh, they just didn't mention that it was for a year in a really nice apartment in Sydney. I mean, it's just quite staggering, some of the, the uh, things that have come out about Bruce Lerman and and uh, Channel 7 um, uh, in from this case that uh, didn't need to come out. <laughs> Yeah, well, it, it, yeah, and again, I guess that's one of the risks, you know, mm. he took on. I guess uh, um, it is. Yeah, it's a pretty, it's a pretty unusual situation, and yeah, not just rent, like a lot of rent. Oh yeah, like, I mean, it's looking like it might cost uh, seven their uh, Walkley nomination. <laughs> oh, well, fair enough. I mean, mm. it, clearly, it's you know, it, yes, it was a lot more than was was sort mm. of needed just to to put him up for the purpose of the of his. Um, about $130,000, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm sure for seven, and that's just a... Yeah. That's a purely that's commercial right. decision. Yeah. Um, and for him, presumably, that's one of the things he factored in as a risk factor that, well, that's that's going to come out. It's going to be a bit embarrassing, but, um, uh, you know, it doesn't... It, it, it doesn't determine one or another whether he's telling the truth. It's, you know, mm, no, no, it doesn't. No, it, no. But um, it sort of yeah. goes to his credibility in a indirect way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in an indirect way, and other things uh, that have come out from the cross examination maybe go to his credibility in a more direct way. I mean, just just because coming back to the, uh, the I know you you you're not a criminal lawyer. Yeah, yeah, but like, um, in terms of some of the stuff that has come out through a defamation questioning that didn't come out through a criminal trial, in terms of credit cards and amounts spent on drinks, how is it possible that more things come out in in a civil trial than in a criminal trial? Partly, I mean, a large part of the explanation for that is, is the right to silence. Um, mm-hmm. In the criminal case, 
the defence has no obligations whatsoever. So the defendant doesn't have to give evidence. The defence doesn't have to assist the prosecution. There's no discovery process. Mm. Um, you know, they, the police can, um, you know, they have search warrant powers so they can get stuff um, compulsorily, but there's no obligation on the defence to, you know, volunteer things because they're relevant. Um, and so, and because he didn't get evidence and couldn't be cross-examined, there's lots of questions that couldn't be asked. Um, so that sort of provides a substantial part of the explanation. Nevertheless, yeah, there's stuff that has come out that you'd think, well, why didn't that? Mm-hmm. Why didn't the prosecution, you know, why wasn't that in evidence in the criminal case? I, I don't know the answer to that. Obviously, you know, forensic choices would have been made. It's, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, uh, it's difficult um, to be an armchair general of yeah. someone else's case. Yeah, look, yeah. But I, I suppose we can we can safely say that this uh, this trial, as with all of the trials relating to this case, has raised a lot of questions about our criminal justice system. Um, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, the whole thing's been a shit show, frankly. Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. I think I, I think I'll just um, yeah. I think we might might wrap things up there. But um, I think it's uh, safe to say that. Bruce fought the law and Bruce won. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, Google that. <laughs> or just enjoy that you live a life where that's information you don't doesn't mean anything to you. Yeah, I wish. <laughs> Michael, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. I'm sure we'll have plenty more excuses to get you on to talk about the wonderful world of defamation in this country. But we will let you go. Thank you so much. Yeah, my pleasure. Great chatting to you. Have a good night. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Triple R! Rachel, tell me about your pet hate. <laughs> well, uh, this sort of came up in the break because I realised um, as we were talking about the letter from Australian journalists to Australian media outlets at the top of the show that I said I'd mention where to find it um, and I didn't end up doing that. So <laughs> for anybody who who is interested in reading the letter for themselves, um you can just Google Jot Form, which is the site that it's done through where people can add their signatures and, and it updates. Um, Jot Form Letter Australian Media um, or, you know, Israel-Palestine. But Jot Form Letter Australian Media will get it for you. Um, and it it got me thinking um, about a little pet hate of mine, um, which is when something like this gets written and distributed um, and it is sent as... You know, often a, an open letter will be sent as a press release to journalists um, and often the original document is very difficult to find if you're not a journalist yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm thinking, um, well, I mean, I'm thinking of this one because uh, Crikey links out to the letter when it refers to it. It just puts it on open letter um, and I didn't use that as the way to get there in case people don't have a Crikey subscription. But um, they should. They absolutely should. Um, are we allowed to say that on Triple R? I don't know. Um, I mean, I think... We have now. Yeah. You, you should. Um, um, and Dennis Muller, who wrote his piece in the conversation about the idea of journalists signing letters, also linked to it. But um, the Sydney Morning Herald, who broke the news of the letter, didn't link to it. Um, and so people reading about the letter through the media are forced to learn about Mm-hmm. the letter through that particular media outlet's interpretation of the letter. And, of course, if you go to uh, the Australian's coverage of this letter, it is a horrifically one-sided, um, you know, anti-Semitic 
letter, which it's uh, not. Which we'd argue that is absolutely not. We would not. argue it's not. But, yeah, no, it, it, it's just a very interesting thing about the way these things get distributed is that people must um, hear about hear about letters and such through the lens of media outlets. And in this case, it's about media outlets. So it's been a very, very strange experience. Um, the, the last time this really bothered me was with the open letter that came out in the week after the voice referendum failed and a bunch of uh, Indigenous leaders behind the Yes campaign uh, sort of collaborated on a letter. It didn't end up having names on it. Uh, it was an anonymous letter and I, yeah, yeah. I understand there was disagreement about the wording. Um, but it just it, it really drove me crazy that the letter, I had access to the letter, but um, most of the media, which is actually where I get my news, believe it or not, um, <laughs> didn't link to the letter, didn't. I mean, and mm. partly it was actually quite hard to get your hand on a, on a PDF link. Um, but, of course, that completely skewed what people believed the letter was. To, according to News Corp, the open letter from Indigenous leaders was very angry and very anti-Australia. Um, mm. And so the day I wrote my column, I actually just went, you know what, why would I offer one more, uh, you know, a, analysis of this letter through which, you know, people get my interpretation of the letter. And I just said, here's the letter, read it. Yeah. I yeah. don't want to tell you what it says. I want to provide you with the link to the letter. Uh, anyway, that's my, that's my rant over. No, it's, it's a very <laughs> fair rant. And I think there is that sense that um, it's, it is so often argued by those same outlets that, it's, that we must just put all of the information out there and allow our readers to form their own point of view. Why that isn't the case on on material of this sort. Totally. Is You're choosing which lines to link to from the letter or to, to quote from the yeah. letter. And, and Let you, people yeah. read the letter. Yeah, you can do both. <laughs> That's the thing is that you, you yes. can have your view as an, as an outlet yes. as long as you allow someone Oh, I don't to, expect uh, them to stop, yeah, <laughs> writing reports on letters. But, uh, yeah, people people should be able to read the thing in full. And so if you haven't, I uh, may I recommend you, hmm. and you are curious about the letter, I uh, you know, jot form, letter, Australian media, we'll, we'll bring it up. Um, on a lighter note, a lighter to, note, to, to yes. finish up before we head to Neil in the Australian mood, um, something that sort of cropped up on our group chat this week, which I think was just fascinating, was the idea that the, well, I mean, the Guardian and uh, Sony Pictures have, according to Press Gazette in the UK, which is a media reporting outlet over we there. We can trust it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in my experience, we can. Um, uh they have they have written a deal which will see Sony gain exclusive first rights to adapt Guardian journalism into film and television dramas and documentaries, um, current both current and developing, and also um, anything from the two hundred year archive, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and yeah like weird. <laughs> well, the question we had for ourselves is, what does that refer to? I mean, it refers mm. to everything, but like yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think you know my my kind of my gag. Kind of a joke, not 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 retching. Uh, my joke response to it was to imagine, like you know how when they announce the the Marvel movies mm. and they have the kind of like phases and they have a little timeline announcing like the next sixteen Marvel films. It would be just like that, but instead of uh, Black Panther, it would be like. I was told off for wearing a backpack on a tram. Have I missed the memo about the latest no-no? Uh, these are all, by the way, or um, no actual lake measures up to the ideal lake for which I yearn. <laughs> yes, these are the, the uh, iconic uh, Guardian opinion piece yes. headlines. My pandemic epiphany, learning my man bun does not define me. <laughs> Sometimes I can't tell because these, these screenshots go around Twitter quite often that are just screenshots of the most like... 
bizarre yeah, yeah, Guardian yeah. opinion headlines. And I, I use Charlie has sent through a bunch of screenshots to us. Those are all, I promise, real. Those are real. Yeah, yeah. Because, but there is, yeah. You read, was Margaret Thatcher really the first Spice Girl? And you go, <laughs> this is a That's satirical it. version of a Guardian headline. But no, apparently these are all real. So it's, it's funny, a few years ago uh, there was a Guardian headline generator where you mm. could do your kind of... Um, your piss-to-hake headlines and do things like that. And then The Guardian sued and got it taken down oh because it infringed copyright. Um, so that's fun. <laughs> well, I think uh, we so can as safely result, assume tell... those are not going to be made into movies, but <laughs> I think... I, I mean, I'd love to see what they did with the, with the, the, the imaginary lake story. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I also have uh, never found a lake that yearns up to the ideal lake for which I yearn. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, we will, <laughs> we will leave. And that's all for this week. Thanks for listening. You can find us every week on your favourite podcast platform. And you can follow us on Twitter at Sample, at Lily Juice, and at The Shuffle Diary. You can also listen in at rrr.org.au via On Demand for the radio version of the show. Want to support Spin Cycle? Become a Triple R subscriber. Your subscription helps keep the station running and helps Triple R produce and create great radio and podcast content like this.